Now, if you'd like to read along this morning with a reading, it's 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. And it goes for a little while. So if you'd like to look up at the screen, you can totally do that or read along in your Bible or on your device. I'll just give you a moment to get ready if you need to. Alrighty, here we go. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptised in my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength brothers and sisters think of what you were when you were called not many of you were wise by human standards not many were influential not many were of noble birth but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power.
Good morning, church. Well, uh, one of the things uh, that uh, excited me and my friends uh, in the days when I was young and in youth group was when we discovered that Bono, that is the lead singer of U2, was a Christian. Now, I, I actually don't know if he was a Christian or not, but we, we believed he was. That's all that's important for my story. Uh, because when we discovered that, suddenly Christianity was cool. I mean, now we didn't have to hang our heads in shame. We could, we could stand up and, you know, because Bono was a Christian. We didn't have to feel despised or a little bit weird. I mean, that, that's how we felt. I mean, we're talking about the 80s, in case you're wondering. Uh, even then, Christianity was kind of a bit weird. It was mocked on TV. But now Bono, Bono's a Christian, so we're in the cool club. Well, kind of not how it turned out, unfortunately. <laughs> so far as I know, there wasn't a great horde of people who suddenly came to faith in Jesus because they discovered that Bono was a Christian. Maybe some did. God can work through all things, obviously. And indeed, if we were to go down through history, what we would discover that was that most often God tends to work in small churches and little places off the radar of most people in the world. And that's where he brings many to faith and grows his church. And you might wonder why. I mean, why doesn't God just convert, you know, Kim Kardashian and, I don't know, I don't know, famous people. <laughs> you know, a whole bunch of famous people and then, you know, the whole world would be converted, isn't it? Why does he work this way? Now, Paul has something to say about that, though he doesn't address that directly, but what we see will explain that. Interestingly, he does that as he's addressing the issue of division. We'll see why as we go along. In some ways, I'm going to focus more on this question of the nature of the gospel, but he he comes to that, he, he describes the nature of the gospel, the nature of his preaching of the gospel and, and so on, because he's dealing with the issue of division. So we'll see that, but we, we also want to see this really important truth of the nature of the gospel, and it's all going to come down again, as it did last time, to Jesus and the centrality of Jesus and the centrality of Jesus dying on the cross for his people. Well, as I say, uh, this is... this begins and, and at heart is about division. And Paul addresses that question straight away in, the, in those verses 10 uh, to 17. And he says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what, it, what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I will follow Paul, another, I will follow Apollos, another, I follow uh, Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Uh, notice, by the way, uh, we have this little footnote here, some from Chloe's household. Uh, it, it would seem that a group from the Corinthian church 
in Chloe's household, went to Paul, they delivered to him a letter that he later addresses, but they also bring him news of the church and he feels the need to address some of that news, which is what he's doing here. Verse 13, he starts to address this problem of division, this following different people, sort of favouring and following different leaders in the church. And he addresses it really in verses 13 to 17 by saying, stop it. <laughs> That's really it. He, there's, there's argument here, but it's very blunt, it's very straightforward. He says in verse, it was, is Christ divided? Uh, oh no, no he's not Paul. Well, what are you doing? Was Paul crucified for you? <laughs> okay, we get the idea, Paul. No, he was not. And neither was Cephas, that is Peter, and neither was Apollos. Only Christ was. So what are you doing? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? Well, that would be a bit weird. No, Paul, we weren't baptised in... Okay, we get the point, Paul. Yes, there's one Christ, we follow Christ, we should be united in that. And, and that, in a way, is his answer. It's very simple, it's very straightforward, as it should be, because that is the answer. Why, why should we not be divided over leaders? <laughs> because there's one Jesus, and that's who we follow. Case closed. Right, so... I mean... But he, he, he actually says more... And, and indeed, the whole section that follows on from there is still about that topic. Uh, and what he is doing is he's, he's, he's treating the actual disease. So he's, in a way, he's treated the symptom. Division is a symptom in the same way that if you start coughing, your real problem isn't the cough. The cough is caused by a disease, some infection or something like that. And he wants to get to that infection, the real problem. And so he goes on to talk about the nature of the gospel. Now, in between doing that, he has this wonderful little uh, side note on who he's baptised. And I have nothing to say about that at all. Not because it's not important, actually, but it, we just don't have time. Though I will note, it's, it's, I, I do find it funny, um, verse 16, oh yes, I baptised the household of Stephanus. Probably he's... he's um, dictating this to someone else and one would guess that the, the person he's dictating to oh, didn't hang on a minute didn't you do Stephanus oh yes I know Stephanus uh, and, and so that gets added into our Bibles which I find um, wonderful but anyway that's he, he says that and then he gets to verse 17 which is where we're going to uh, focus uh, if you have some questions about the baptism verses by all means come and talk to me for Christ did not send me to baptise. Well, there you go, that's very interesting, but again, we're not talking about that, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. And from that point, he transitions into talking about the nature of his ministry. Now, in one sense, what he is doing is he's answering one of the objections to him as an apostle, that is... Uh, some people, it would seem, as you read on to 1 Corinthians and you read into 2 Corinthians, said, you know, Paul, he's very powerful in his letters, but when he comes in person, he's kind of weak and, and not very interesting to listen to. And, and Paul is addressing the, the question, why do, why do I preach the way I preach? But again, that's, again, that's just a symptom. He's, he's dealing with the real disease. And so he says in verse 18, for the message of the cross 
is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Paul is going to demonstrate what he means by that, by showing how the gospel is foolishness to the world, to those who are perishing, but it is to those who are saved, the power of God. Now, what's interesting immediately is that that's an unexpected contrast. You would expect him to say, wouldn't you? Uh, it's foolishness to the world, but it's wisdom to us. I mean, that, that's the expected contrast. Um, and indeed, he does point out that the gospel is, is wise, is, is the wisdom of God. But his emphasis, and over and over again, you, you see this throughout this passage, it's foolishness to the world, but it's, it's power of God to us. And so we're going to have to work our way through to discover what he means by that. Let's start with the foolishness. Why does he say the cross, the message of the cross is foolishness to the world, to those who are perishing? Well, he talks about the Jews and he talks about the Greeks. The Jews, he says, they demand a sign. And now if you think about the Jewish world, uh, the Jewish Old Testament, I should say, uh, that makes perfect sense because what happens over and over and over again, God proves himself to the Jewish people, doesn't he? By escape from Egypt, by uh, the parting of the Red Sea, by uh, the crossing of the Jordan, by the destruction of Jericho, by over and over again, God demonstrates his power. And so uh, when the message of the cross comes to the Jewish people, what do they say? Well, what's this? This isn't a sign. This isn't power. This isn't God demonstrating his might. What is this? A guy dying on a cross? No, this can't be from God. God, when he demonstrates himself, he comes with power. And they might also say, because you notice he says, where is the teacher of the law? That, that they might come and say... Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, we don't need that. We've got the law, we've got the sacrifices, everything's okay between us and God. We've worked this out. You see, they thought they knew better. And that's at the heart of what Paul means by human wisdom that he talks about in this passage. He talks in verse 21 and he says, human wisdom does not acknowledge God. And when we don't acknowledge God, we think we know better. We think we know better about how the world works. We think we know better about what's good and bad. We think we know better about salvation, as the Jews might. We think we, 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 think we know better. We, and and you, you know that this is exactly how our world thinks, our culture thinks. Our culture thinks that it knows best. We know better than God. We know better than what he says. We can create reality as we want it. And that's what the Jews, Jews said. No, 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 we don't believe what you have to say, God. And so... Did the Greeks? The Greeks, Paul says, demand wisdom. Now he doesn't mean wisdom as in the old in the Bible. He means wisdom as in again human wisdom, how we think the world works, how we think everything should operate. And so when you come to the Greeks, the the Roman Greek thinking world, and say, "Hey, look, here's a man who's going to die for your sins on the cross," they go, "What? 
Are you kidding me? Sins? What is a sin? Why, don't, why, does, why do we have to have someone dying for sin? That doesn't make any sense. We don't believe in that. And a man on a cross? Don't you understand that the cross is for criminals? It's for shameful people? It's for bad people? What are you talking about? And so you get this piece of graffiti. This is from a little bit later, um, later on, but it's the thinking that was in the world. This is um, clay, and they've done a little pencil outline of it so you can see. And you can see there's a man here, and he's, well, I'm not sure what he's doing, but he's supposed to be worshipping this figure here, uh, which is a man with a donkey's head. And the text that was written on this ancient graffiti says, Alexemenos worships his God. Alexemenos worships his God, this donkey-headed man. And I'm guessing that donkey-headed persons were the same, would be essentially the same as it is today, right? Poor old donkeys, the butt of everyone's jokes. Alexemenos, Alexemenos, silly name anyway, um, he, he believes he worships an idiot, a fool. A stupid idea. A man who would die on a cross. Who believes in that? Foolishness. And friends, it is no different today. The people in our culture are no different. Not only do they think they know best, the, the, the cross is foolishness to them. I won't repeat the joke here, but a, there was a few months back on the project, uh, there was someone who mocked Jesus' death in the most vile way. because the cross is utter foolishness to our culture. Sins? Why does God care about what we do? I mean, is he that petty? I mean, is he that sort of hurt feelings that he has to care about what we do? Why would he make someone else die for my sins? That's ridiculous. Why would, I don't need that. It's insulting. Doesn't God just want us to be happy, that is free? foolishness the cross is foolishness to human ears all through the ages and all through the cultures including now jesus christ dying on a cross for our sins is foolishness and you know that i probably didn't need to explain that to you because you probably sense that whenever you start to even think about sharing the gospel with someone then you get this feeling are they going to think this is stupid not that you think it's stupid. I take it that you delight in the cross. You're blown away by the cross. We sing about the cross, the love of Christ dying for us, us, sinful human beings who he didn't want anything to do with him and he came down and he suffered in this world and died and took our sins upon us so that we might be free, so that our sins will be washed away and we have his righteousness and we can stand as we sung before the throne of God, pure and clean and confident because of Jesus Christ. It fills us with joy and excitement and delight and it is wisdom because how in the world was God going to destroy sin without destroying sinful people? Well, he sent his son into the world pure and righteous to die in our place so that he could be perfectly just 
and all the sin that needed to be paid for would be paid for and he could be perfectly merciful and loving because he died in our place and took the punishment that we deserved. Cross is wisdom. But we know that when we talk about it to other people, there's at least a decent chance that they'll think it's stupid. <laughs> think that we're stupid. Now, is the difference between me and my average Aussie neighbour that I'm like super smart and wise? Well, obviously that's true, but... But is that, is that actually the difference? That's not the difference. Paul says in verse 24, but to those who what? God is, uh, is who are really smart? No, those whom God has called. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Those whom God has called. There is only one thing that can open a person's eyes, to, that can remove the fog of unbelief so that they can see the glory of the, Christ, of the cross, and that is God. And it's comforting to me, I hope it is to you as well, that Paul can say that the, cross, the message of the cross is foolishness. Because it means it doesn't depend on me when I take the message of the cross to someone else. I mean, we should have answers for the hope that we have and we should try and do it in a sensible way and so on. But that's not the real problem. I should try and remove any unnecessary stumbling blocks between a person and the cross, but I cannot remove the ultimate stumbling block, which is the cross of Jesus Christ itself. The only one who can do that is Jesus. The only one who can turn it into power in a person's life is Jesus. And the gospel is power because it's not just a message. It does something to us, doesn't it? It delights us and excites us and it fills us with a joy that's indescribable. It comforts us. It moves us. The gospel is powerful. I'll say more about that in a minute, but the gospel works in us. God must do the work in a person's heart. That's what Paul is saying. Otherwise, it will only ever be foolishness. Now, what does that mean? That means if you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus Christ and the gospel of thrills you and you delight to sing before the throne of God, above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and intercedes for me. I have a terrible memory anyway, but you understand. If you delight to sing that and sing the right words, mind you, um, that is because God has done something. There's only one way that you can delight in that cross and that's because God has done something for you. But it also means that if you're here this morning and you, you haven't seen that, you look at the cross and you think, ah, there's only one thing that you can do. You have to ask God to part the fog so you can see. 
Well, Paul, having explained the nature of the gospel, now moves on to explain the sort of people that are transformed by this gospel, that God tends to transform with this gospel. And he has some somewhat unpleasant things to say, it would seem, about the Corinthian church. Verse 26, Brothers and sisters, think of what you are, were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. Okay, we can deal with that, but he goes on. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Uh, imagine if that letter was written to you. <laughs> All right, maybe I could write it in the bulletin next week, dear church, those who are foolish or were foolish and weak and lowly and despised. Now, it's insulting, but presumably it's also true. And let's be honest, it's true of us as well. We're very ordinary people. It's not that we're talentless buffoons. Uh, I'm not saying that. Um, I don't think Paul is either. Uh, but we're ordinary. Not many of us, if any of us were powerful or influential or particularly magnificently talented or amazing people, we're all very ordinary. And some of you, some of us, perhaps, we're on the on a terrible trajectory in your life when Christ called you. Your life was not in a good way, but he called you into his kingdom. You see, God delights to save the lowly and the despised and the weak and the foolish by human standards. The gospel, as I said, thrives and takes root amongst the poor and the despised and the lowly. And the question is, why? Why does God work that way? Well, so that no one, Paul tells us, can boast. We really are terribly prone as human beings to thinking that we have something to offer God. That we have something to bring to the table and give to God as, as we enter into His kingdom. God, look at my resume, look how wonderful I am. And if you are already successful and wealthy and powerful, then you're going to think that all the more. And they're not the sort of people who are going to submit to Christ's humbling. Now, I'm going to talk in this section uh, as if it's up to us, and I just told you that it was, <laughs> it's up to him. Well, that's the mystery of the gospel in some ways. The reality is, people who are rich and powerful and clever and brilliant and beautiful and so on can be humbled by God. Look at Paul. But it took a fair bit, didn't it? And God tends to work in this world with the, those who have already been humbled by life so that when they boast, 
when they say, this is what I have, I have redemption, I have righteousness and I have holiness in Christ, I have everything, they realise that it's all from Christ, they brought nothing to the table. Naked to the cross I cling, says in that great hymn. We have nothing, we bring nothing to the table and God wants us to, to realise that. He wants us to be bewildered by the question, why did God call me? <laughs> why me? Why did he, I can't, why did he call, I've got nothing to offer, I, I am a sinful, broken human being and he wants us to stand there amazed that he would actually call us, he would open our eyes, that he would part the mist, he would help us to see the gospel of Jesus Christ and we would stand amazed and say, God, I cannot believe that you called me, me of all people. You are so good. You are so glorious. You are so kind. You see, that, that him who boasts, that, that the person who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Now that also means, friends, that as we take the gospel to the world, we should not be discriminating. That is, as we take this foolish message of the cross to people, we ought not to fall into the trap of thinking, ah, well... It's the nice middle-class people who already have their life together. They're likely to accept the gospel because look how well they're already doing. <laughs> oh, dearie me. Or we should take the gospel to the famous people. Lord, imagine what that would do. Well, no. God calls the things that are not to nullify the things that are. In other words, to show that the wisdom of the world is nothing. And though we can take the gospel to anyone, including the rich and the powerful and so on, we ought not despise and, and neglect the poor and the broken and the lowly, for that is who God delights to save, so that they stand in awe that he ever decided to call, him, to call them. It sounds a, seems a foolish plan, doesn't it? As I said at the beginning, I mean, wouldn't God be better calling the powerful and the rich. I mean, they can do so much more in the world. They have so much more influence in the world. God, what are you doing with this, this, this lowly and despised plan? What are you... Well, God uses his apparently weak saviour to save weak people. The message, you see, matches those who are called. <laughs> an apparently weak and broken God on a cross is calling weak and broken people so that all the glory goes to him. Well, having described the nature of the gospel and the sorts of people that God most often calls through this foolish gospel... Paul now talks about the way he preaches, which to them was a foolish way to preach. And he says in verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, he's, he talks to them about coming to them in weakness and fear and trembling. And he says, I didn't come with eloquence and human wisdom. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, 
Uh, there was at the time what was called the art of rhetoric. You, Aristotle talks about this, but it's more common. Uh, I mean, it wasn't just him, it was lots of people. But the art of rhetoric was the art of persuasion. And the idea was that on any topic, if I was a great rhetorician, that I would be able to convince you of what I thought. I would be able to move you and even bring you to tears and excite you and convince you and you would go away saying, well, yes, the sky really is pink, right? Because the issue wasn't whether it was true or not. The issue was whether I could convince you through the art of my speaking that the thing I was telling you was true and important and significant. And they would have these orators uh, come and speak at parties for entertainment. Now, that's a bit odd. And yet, there is such a thing as TED Talks, which people listen to for entertainment, essentially. Indeed, many of these TED Talks, if you watch them closely, use similar arts of persuasion. And you can Google uh, how to sound smart in your TEDx talk. You Google that, how to, how to sound smart in your TEDx talk. That's the name of one of the TEDx talks. Uh, there is a guy there showing how, even as he talks about nothing, he can make it sound important and significant. <laughs> because you can do that. But Paul says, I didn't do that. No, when I came to you, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, there's that phrase, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. What is Paul saying? He's, he's asking the question, how do you remove the fog? He's come to these people in Corinth, there's a fog over their eyes, they cannot see the glory of the cross, it's foolishness to them. How does he remove it? Well, he could have come and he could have used rhetoric. If he had done that, he might have moved them. He might have moved them to tears. He might have excited them and enthused them and they might have marched out of there full of excitement at this wonderful message that this man just gave them. But... But, would they actually have been changed? Would the fog have disappeared? Would they actually have come to faith? And Paul's answer is, well, you wouldn't know. <laughs> or at least you would be uncertain. And so Paul says, I came and I preached the gospel to you plainly. That's what he means by this phrase, I, I knew, sorry, I've lost my spot. I, I, when I was with you, I knew nothing except Christ and Him crucified. I knew nothing except Christ and Him cru crucified, the plain gospel message. Now again, he, he speaks in an understandable way. He, he seeks to remove any barriers, unnecessary barriers to them believing in the, in the message of the cross. You can see that in, in Athens when he speaks. 
uh, in, the, in the book of Acts. But he does it without rhetorical tricks so that their faith would rest on God's power. Now, what does it mean for God, your faith to rest on God's power? Does he mean, when he says, it came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, does Paul mean that when he came, he did miracles and therefore they believed on the basis of those miracles? No. Because what has he already said back in the, in the previous chapter? Oh, pre, yes, previous chapter. He said, Jews demand signs. And the implication is, but I didn't give any. Signs are no better than fancy rhetoric. Because a miracle, that's a sign, a miracle doesn't convince anyone. It doesn't open up anyone's eyes. And you can see this if you go and look at the gospel uh, the, the ministry of Jesus. Remember that time when he feeds 6,000 people and then he, he has to flee them and he goes across the lake and he gets to the other side and they find him again because they're desperate for what? More teaching? No, they're desperate for more food. And he says that to them. He says, you're here because you wanted more bread. <laughs> and he says, no, but you have to eat me, which, by which he means you have to accept me as your, your saviour, essentially. And what happens? Most of them leave. He turns to his disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And they say, no, only where else have we to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You see, signs, signs don't remove the fog. All they make people do is go, wow, that's amazing. So that's not what he means. Well, what does he mean by the demonstration of the Spirit's power. He means life transformation brought about by the gospel spoken plainly. There's a great example of that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. For we know, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, and here it is, but with the with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. If you go and read that chapter, what he goes on to do from there is to give them evidence after evidence after evidence that the Spirit changed their lives because through the preaching of the Gospel. Part of it is this deep conviction in the Gospel, but he goes on to talk about the fact that they had joy in their salvation despite severe suffering, they became imitators of Christ. That is, they, they changed the way they lived and acted toward one another and to other, other people. They, they proclaimed the gospel. They turned from idols uh, and, and, and served Jesus. And, and they, they lived looking forward not to tomorrow or what's on their table or whatever. They lived looking forward to the return of Christ. Now, none of those things that he mentions, none of those things can happen apart from the power of the Spirit working in someone's life. And so what Paul is saying here is, how do you know? How do you know that the fog is truly removed from your eyes and you truly have faith in Jesus? Well, because your life has been transformed. Because it moves you. Because the gospel isn't just information to you, but, and you weren't just moved once when I was using the rhetoric, but you've been continually moved on from them as the gospel continues to change you over and over and over again. 
It wasn't simply that I moved your hearts and thrilled your minds and manipulated you. You heard the gospel plainly preached and it changed you. It changed you there and it's continued to change you and that can only be the Spirit. That's what he means by a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Transformed lives as people believe in the gospel. And friends, sadly, throughout the history of the church and even up until today, people have been reluctant to rely on the plain preaching of the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong, I do not mean boring, sloppy, unnecessarily abrasive preaching, preaching without emotion and and passion because (laughs) we're talking about eternity. We're talking about people's salvation. We're talking about the God of the universe. There ought to be passion and emotion (laughs) and excitement Preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel should have all of that, but it should be plain. Even foolish seeming in its plainness. And today you'll find speakers that use all the tricks of rhetoric. Amazing light and sound shows, peer pressure tactics to get you to come down the front. And you know where it can leave people? God can use even that, obviously. But you know where it can leave people? With a sense of having had faith. Because after all, they came down the front, or they got emotional, or it kind of seemed like a good idea, and everyone else was doing it. But their lives are not changed. They're not thrilled by the gospel. They're not moved by Christ. They don't delight in Him and want to grow in their desire to serve Him. They're not transformed. They still keep Him at arm's length. They're still living under their own wisdom. They still think they know best. And so our aim is to see see people experience the Spirit's power as they sit under the cross of Christ taught plainly and clearly. That's our aim, to see people experience the, the Spirit's power as they sit under the cross of Christ taught plainly and clearly. And that's what we need to do as evangelists because it doesn't depend on us. We can't remove the foolishness, the sense of foolishness in the cross. All we can do is present it to people in a way that they can understand it. Now, (laughs) we said this was about division. I haven't talked about that much. But if you think about all that Paul has said, it actually solves the problem of division as well, doesn't it? Because if all anyone who's following Christ is is a fool who was rescued by the proclamation of the gospel under the power of the Spirit. That is, fools rescued by God's powerful gospel. If that's all we are, if that's all I am, and that's all you are, 
and that's all Paul was, and that's all Cephas was, and that's all Apollos was, and that's, that's all each of the people in Corinth were, then what ground is there for division and favourites and boasting and competition and looking down on one? There's no grounds. There's no grounds at all. All, each and every one of us was blinded by our folly, now transformed by the Spirit's power as we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what binds the church together. That's who we are. Fools rescued by God's powerful gospel. And that's what we seek to do. We take a foolish message to the world, to a people lost in their own folly, in an apparently foolish way, <laughs> and wait for God to do his work. And wait for the Spirit to remove that veil, to open people's eyes, so that they can see the glory and the wonder of the cross of Jesus Christ and be saved and transformed by that Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have rescued us. We acknowledge that it is nothing of us. We were fools. The cross had no joy for us, no meaning for us, no attractiveness to us until you opened our eyes to see Christ, our Saviour, bearing our sin and shame, washing us clean and making us your friends once again. Lord, continue to transform us by your gospel that we might witness your power deeply at work in us and find delight in the transforming work of the gospel through your spirit. And Father, if there are some here today who they're not sure about your cross or it seems foolish to them, we do ask that you would open their eyes that they too would delight in the message of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you as well that this morning we can, in a more focused way, celebrate the Lord's Supper and so remember the wonderful sacrifice of Christ for us. Help us to know Christ and Him crucified to know it to our core and be changed by that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.